The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're in Advent week number two. I don't know if if you're anything like me, but this this season, uh, it just feels flooded with activity and expectations and busyness and so many good things, but also just like a lot. Like it's time to even find space in the calendar to to do the things we're supposed to do, let alone just like slow down and breathe. And we we recognize during this season, we're, we're anticipating, we're longing, and we're looking ahead to the coming of Christ. We look back to the fact that Christ has come. Uh, Jesus came into the world as a baby, as a king in an unexpected way, in order to establish his kingdom. And he's, he's also come to us by his spirit. So we celebrate that at Pentecost, where God has given us his spirit and filled his people to strengthen us, to animate us, and to guide us and lead us and, and, and testify that we are sons and daughters of our Father. Um, but what is in view for this Advent season for us in particular is that Christ will come again. Christ will come again, just as surely as he died on the cross and rose again, conquering sin and Satan and death. He has promised us he will return to make all things new. And so we want, we want space for that. We want to consider that. Even we'll see in this text, the, the, the considering that Paul did of just looking at the reality of present suffering and the dimensions of this life up against the fact that Christ will come and enter us into a new creation that will last for days without end. So Christ has come to us. He is with us now, and he will come again. But we're in this time between. We're in this, this already but not yet. His, his kingdom is established, but it's not yet what it will be, and we, we feel that. And one way to describe that, as we, we see in this text, is a, is a groaning, this inward longing, this aching of just like, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. We, we long for something different. We long for something better. So where does that groaning come from? And then how do we have hope in the midst of that groaning? A very honest look at the reasons for that groaning, but then a hope in the midst of it. That's what we're, we're looking at this morning. So let's pray together, and then we'll get into this passage. Uh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you, you have come to us, that, that you didn't uh, turn a blind eye or ignore the pain and the suffering of this world. You didn't look at the darkness of our own hearts and say, 
hey, it's up to you to kind of figure this thing out. You know, you know that we cannot deliver ourselves. For all of our strategies and attempts and self-help that we try to muster up, we cannot rescue ourselves from ourselves. We need you. We need a Savior from the outside. And you've, you've entered into our story. You've taken on our brokenness, our sin, our shame, so that we may have life with God forever. But we live in this weird space right now where we have your promises and we have the, the, the presence of your spirit and we have uh, what we can feel like a, a hope that is genuine but can escape us so often. And we long for something better. We long for you to make all things new, to take what we currently experience and to bring about what you've always intended for it. So help us, help us to be honest in those spaces where we long for that, and then to hear your voice, to know you, to know your presence, that you would enter into those places, maybe places that, 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 that sitting here today, we're not even aware. This is where I long for God's voice to, to speak clearly. Maybe for, for some of us, it, it, it's so visceral, it's so thick, it's so real. Whatever it is, wherever we fall on that spectrum, Lord, may you, you enter in. And give us a, a confident hope and a joy in you and the fact that you will come again and, and restore all that is broken. And Jesus, we pray it in your name. Amen. There was a, a story uh, about a, a young boy who was born in the year 1818 uh, in, in West Prussia, so modern Germany, uh, born in 1818, and entered into this home where his father had just made a, a pretty significant decision the year before he was born. Now, his father himself had grown up in this uh, very Jewish home. His father was a, so grandfather of this little boy, it, it, was, a, it was a Jewish rabbi, and so uh, just like this was, this was the way you orient your life, that the customs and the practices and what you believe and, and what it looks like in your, your family life, your communal life, all of it was oriented around this. Well, he eventually became a, a lawyer, a fairly prominent lawyer, and, and had his position, made his money, and started a family, and had a few kids. And well, before long, the kingdom of Prussia took over this area and pushed back some of the, the former Napoleonic influence that had a little bit more freedom of religion. And, and now he was forced to make a decision. Uh, either convert from your Judaism that you've had since birth and just like embedded in your way of life to the, the kingdom's religion, Lutheranism, and keep your job, continue to be a lawyer, uh, continue to make money, continue to provide for your family, or don't convert, continue on with what you actually believe, and you will no longer be able to hold that position in our society anymore. So this little boy's father was faced with that decision, and he, he decided a year before this boy was born uh, that he... He wanted to provide for his family. He wanted to maintain his position. And so he himself converted over to Lutheranism. And by the time this little boy was about five or six, uh, the whole family was baptized into uh, the Lutheran faith. Not because of belief, not because of conviction, not because they're persuaded by uh, the communication of the tenets of the faith, but because it worked. It was pragmatic. It made economic sense allowed himself to, to stay in this position. And so this little boy grows up in that environment with that as the backdrop. So like, hey, you make your religious decisions based upon what is pragmatically helpful for other goals, other ends, other values, other purposes. Well, this young boy uh, grows up 
from there and eventually studies, becomes a fairly prominent philosopher and has his own dose of joys and sorrows and areas of suffering and, and happiness. And, and eventually he writes this in one of his published works. Man makes religion. Religion does not make man. Religion is indeed the self-consciousness and self-esteem of man who is either not yet won through to himself or has already lost himself again. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. You see here this young boy that grew up in that environment, came to his own convictions and all the sorts of experiences he had is, is Karl Marx. And the, the ideas really represented by that, that line, religion is the opium of the people, is found in, in so many different corridors of society today. And sometimes we hear like, ah, oh, well, Christianity or religion or whatever, that, that's a crutch. It's a crutch for people who can't deal with the raw reality of life. When actual difficulty comes, they just can't handle it, so they need something. You know, this idea of opium, it's, it's a, a drug that's going to numb the senses, kind of pulls into a false reality so that we don't have to fully experience or feel what is right there staring us down in the eyes. How often is this the, the sentiment? And I wish I could say that the typical experience that I've had um, within a lot of kind of sub-Christian culture was different than this, but I, it's, it's almost as if there, there, there's a, an ability by the church to ignore the reality of pain and give us some technically true, almost like glib response. I, I, I've had this burning question since I was a, a young child. What, what do we do with the brokenness in front of us? What do we do with that? Are there, there actual responses to that? Is there a way to have genuine hope? Or do we need to just kind of avoid it, kind of push it away from our lives, stay away from those who suffer too much? and kind of just skip along the surface of things? Or is there a way to enter in and actually have genuine hope? A confidence that it's not meaningless, it's not purposeless, there's actually design within it, and it's taking us somewhere. I think all of us, in some form or fashion, ask this question. We navigate it in some sort of way. What do we do with the strains and the tensions and the groanings of life? In our honest moments, when we look around, what do we do with that? Sometimes I think we, we find some other groaning part of creation to attach our hope to. You know, we're groaning. Let's find something else that doesn't seem like it's groaning. Eventually we'll find out that it is, but that's where our hope goes. Or realize, ah, this actually isn't working, so eventually we spiral into this place of, of just hopelessness where we don't have a confidence, where we're not really sure what to do in the midst of all of that. It just seems to be too much. The world is filled, I think we could say, with a chorus of harmonious groanings. Not all expressed in the same experience or reality or even kind of a depth or rawness of that pain, but there's a harmony to it. There's an aching and a longing. I was scrolling through uh, this past week, uh, the AP's top 2022 photos. I mean, just, just some of the 150 or so pictures that came through. The, the collapsed bridge in India where hundreds died. The invasion of Ukraine 
that we're still watching the news on the implications of, the real experience for so many. The water crisis in the American Southwest, I mean, the Colorado River, drying up in a lot of places. Sri Lankan protests, and the violence that has ensued from that, the unrest in Iran, the wildfires, the increase in fentanyl use, and down on the line, the title of this article, these pictures capture a planet bursting at the seams. We see that here in this text. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. A groaning. But it's not just us, or it's not just creation, it's also us harmoniously singing in the same choir of just groaning, of longing for something to be made new. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. These groanings, these internal just areas of, of aching, of knowing that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's the best definition of sin I've, I've, I've come across. Uh, author Cornelius Plantiga, his book on sin is called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Not the way it's supposed to be. Where do we feel that? Where do you feel that in your own heart? Where do you feel that in your relationships? Where do you feel that on behalf of other people? Where do you feel that this season? Not the way it's supposed to be. Terms get thrown out like entropy, Murphy's Law, bad karma, bad luck. Different ways of describing this reality, but, but we recognize this is not the design. This is not actually what it's made for. Well, how do we understand the brokenness? Where did this come from? Where did this come from? We saw there in verse 19, the creation, it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Well, who, who's, who's the him? Who, who's the, 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 the subjector uh, of creation to futility? This actually takes us all the way back to the beginning of the biblical narrative in Genesis 3. So God, God has placed humanity in this, this flourishing creation. He says, listen to my voice. Trust me for what is good. I, I will define what is good and evil for you, what will lead to your joy and satisfaction. Submit to me. Listen to my voice. Go the way that I've laid out for you, and you will actually find your life and your joy. We said, no, thank you. No, thank you. We actually want to step outside of your voice, and we want to define what is good for me. We want to define what is evil for me. We want to define what, where the good life is found outside of the voice of God, what he's given to us. And what we see in Genesis 3 is that sent fractures, not just through our own hearts, but through the entire cosmos, through the entire creation. There's a, there's a, a tethering of humanity in that which we were designed to steward and to oversee. So God placed us in this initial garden. He said, so much opportunity. Go use your lives to, to build relationships and, and start new things and invent and create and, and draw out all that is possible here. But when we broke it, when we broke our relationship with God and with life himself, it sent death and decay everywhere. As the gardener goes, so goes the gardener, or the garden. As the CEO goes, so goes the company. As the, the pastor goes, the leader of the institution 
the nonprofit leader, on on down the line, where the leader goes, so goes the thing that is led. And that is what has happened all throughout our creation everywhere we turn. And so there's this groaning, this groaning. It's not as bad as it could be, but the evil and the death and decay has touched and affected and impacted every facet of life. I think author Al Walter sums this up well. He says, not only the whole human race, but the whole non-human world too was caught up in the train of Adam's failure to heed God's explicit commandment and warning. The effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is, in principle, untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall. Whether we look at societal structures such as the state or family, or cultural pursuits such as art and technology, or bodily functions such as sexuality or eating, or anything at all within the wide scope of creation, we discover that the good handiwork of God has been drawn into the sphere of human mutiny against God. So we have these good things that were created, but because of our sin, because we've rejected God's authority and his voice, it warped all of it. It took it in the wrong direction. It distorted it. It actually oriented in a different direction for which God did not design it. And so the Bible uses this word futility. Futility. This this idea of, of, I feel like this is, it's not realizing the purpose for which it was made. It's like there's so much more, there's so much potential, like what it could be, what our lives could be, what our relationships could be, what our society could look like, what politics could be. We're like, ah, but it's, it's not quite there. Maybe a little tweaking there, a little, little change over here, a little vote differently there. Ah, but it's still not getting there, still not arriving according to its design. Futility. Not fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. Maybe, maybe we could think of it this way. It's like, a, it's like a Tesla that sits in the garage and has weekly outings to the grocery store a half mile away. Futility is like Taylor Swift being stuck forever doing open mic at a rural coffee shop. Some of you are like, no, that's, that's exactly the proper design. <laughs> Melanie just rolled her eyes. It's like Michael Jordan playing baseball for the entirety of his career. Or futility. All of the coffee beans in the world bought up in some sort of weird monopoly move by Starbucks. No other coffee beans available elsewhere. Futility did not reach the designed purpose of the thing. This comes from us. This comes from you, it comes from me, it comes from our rebellion against God. This is what sent fractures and futility into the world. This flies in the face of of so many cultural assumptions that we we bump into on a regular basis. So often it's, well, yes, there's a category of evil, but it's, it's the people who think this way. It's the people who live that way. It's the people who spend their money this way. It's the people who vote this way. It's people part of that political party. It's people who are convinced or convicted of those types of things. There's the evil category. Here's the line. Here's the fault line. And now let me define for you where the good is, where I, where, where I am. The, believe this. You're convicted by that. You're led into this. You decide these things. You have this viewpoint on that particular issue. It's not that we don't have a fault line of good and evil. We just tend to say, there's the evil and it's them over there, and here's my group that's good. We're good. This is not the way that the Bible understands the fault line. I think Christopher Watkin is, is helpful here. He says, there is a fault line between good and evil, but it does not run between aspects of creation, 
between human faculties or between different social groups. It runs down the middle of them all. It is not that the material is inherently corrupt and the immaterial inherently pure, but both of them are created things subject to the fall. It is not that the appetite is inherently corrupt and reason inherently pure, but the same line runs down the middle of our appetites and down the middle of our reason. And biblically speaking, the line between good and evil does not run between us and them, but down the middle of both us and them. This is where the corruption is found, in all of it, in our own hearts, in our honest moments, in our honest moments. I think we can, we can take stock a little bit and say, yeah, I, I see that. I see the darkness. I see the warped desires. I see the, the things that I, I tend to day, daydream about. I, I see the things that I've done, the things that I've said, my, my, my past, the things I'm ashamed of. We look around us and we see the corruption. We see the futility. It's not what it, it's designed to be, and it runs through all of creation. So in the face of that, if Marx is right, or if kind of the, the sentiment of Marx's line that, that still is so common in our Western society, if, if that's true, then we should probably eat, drink, and be momentarily merry, merry until the lights go out. We should probably prance along kind of the surface of this life, not push too far into suffering, avoid the pain. If other people are suffering, we should probably stay away from that because that's going to that's gonna tread on our ability to, to have good experiences and to feel nice and to feel satisfied in the moment, to feel kind of like a, a transient moment of happiness. If that's true, then we should just numb our sorrow, F find whatever we can to feel good for the moment before it all shuts down and it's all over. For as another philosopher has put it, the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So perhaps we can just squeeze a little bit more pleasure out of life until it's all said and done. But if Jesus is correct, if Scripture is true, if what God has said about the fact that Jesus will come again and he will wipe away every tear, he will take every ounce of sorrow and turn it into gladness, that he will take the suffering, he will take the grief, he will take the pain, he will take the brokenness, and he will make something new from it, that it's not wasted, he's not ignorant of it, he's not blind to it, he's not absent in the midst of it, that he will actually take us somewhere in the new creation when he returns, that we may be confident of that, then we may have hope. Then we may have a confidence. We may have an assurance. We may have a joy in the midst of the sorrow, a hope in the midst of what is broken. And so we live with this hope of what is to come. It's always intriguing to me when, when modern research uh, and empiricism like catches up to what Scripture's already communicated to be true. I mean, you, you do like a quick search on like, what's the, the benefits of hope? And you actually see people who live with hope and, you know, how do you do the qualitative study for all of that? I'm not entirely sure. People who, who sense some level of hope in comparison to others, less anxiety, less depression, able to overcome difficulty more, actually more productive. Uh, one study found that, that you get uh, one more day per week of productivity for someone who lives in kind of the, the higher level of hope. And so that aside, this, God has designed us for that. He's made us for hope. He's made us to look forward and say, something better is coming. It's not some sort of drug-induced effect that, that causes me to live in a false reality. This is real. This is what Christ is bringing about. 
even now, and he will one day when he comes again. And so biblically, hope is living with a present confidence and anticipation of a still future reality. It's this present confidence and assurance of a future reality. Almost like it's, it's reaching back into our present and saying, this is what it will one day be. I'm going to live in light of that. I'm going to experience the effects of what God will do in Christ. It's different than wishing or mere optimism because those lack a real substance. This is saying there is substance to this future reality, and therefore I can have hope. Therefore I can have hope. Well, how do we have this hope? Look with me back to the text. Back in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is the first thing. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. So Christ has come as a baby, grew as a man, died on the cross, rose again, ascended. And then at Pentecost, sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to dwell within his people, to testify that we are the sons and daughters of the true king and that one day he will come again. That we have these first fruits, this, this deposit, this guarantee, this down payment and saying, I will come again for you. I'm already with you now. It's not yet in its fullness, but I'm with you now. And I, I will speak to you. I will encourage you. I will remind you. I will illuminate your mind to what I've revealed in scripture. The spirit has come and he is with us now. It's we have this spirit who awakens us and assures us of what is to come. So the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he see, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So not only do we have the first fruits of the spirit, but we're able to be honest about the groaning, about the things that cause us to groan. We can be honest about the pain, about the suffering, about the difficulty, about the darkness, about the places that are not the way they're supposed to be. It's actually because of the Spirit's presence, because He's enlivened us and awakened us, we can be more in tune with the areas of brokenness because we see we're made for something better. We're made for a life with God. We're made for reconciled relationships. We're made for peace and humility and kindness and tenderness, the fruit of the Spirit coming through in our relationships. We're made for that, and so we can feel when that's not actually happening. So it causes us to groan at a different level. So we can be honest. We have the Spirit. We can be honest about the groaning. And third, this eager anticipation, this eager longing. This word used here uh, by Paul, it, it kind of gives the idea of like on, on our tiptoes, like craning our neck, like just, just like can't wait to see what's coming, to, to fully see it, to fully realize it, to finally have it be our lived reality. An eager patience, longing for it, hoping for it, knowing that it will one day be for us. I think this is where we could afford to have a little bit more of a of a theological imagination. Uh, usually when I think imagination, I think of, of what my, my young kids do. Um, you know, Everett, our almost five-year-old, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm working like dad. You know, apparently this is how I type on the computer. He's like, I'm, I'm typing. I'm like, it's a tree. Like you're looking at a tree. You're sitting on a branch, you're looking at a tree. It's like the ability to see things that don't actually exist 
It, it stuns me how children are able to do that. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We can be informed by that, learn from that. That's not the type of imagination that we're being called into here. The type of theological imagination that, that we're being ushered into by Paul is to, is to be able to, to see in the present what is right now only future. To say, it's real, it's coming, the restored creation is coming. Christ is making all things new. When he returns, when he returns, he will wipe away every tear. He will take up all of our sorrow and it will bear fruit in the new kingdom with God forever. Oh, to be able to see that clearly now. Because actually this is the truer reality, the truer truth in what we experience right now. We're in the midst of it. It, it feels obviously the most real because we're, we're walking through life. But as any mathematician, physicist, whatever else would tell you, any number compared to infinity is zero. It's what we have with life, with God forever, unending, in comparison, it becomes not even worth comparing, Paul says. But what does it look like to, to live with this theological imagination? To say in the moment of difficulty, in the moment of suffering, what will Christ's kingdom, what will his second coming mean for me? So when you wake up in the morning with that anxiety again, one day when Christ returns, there will be only peace, only stillness, only the calm of his presence and being with his people. When you feel the, the, the depression come in, and it, it, your energy is zapped, and you feel like you can't go on and kind of can't make sense of the, the realities around you. One day in the presence of Jesus, he will give you joy unending. He will give you a confidence in himself. He will give you motiva motivation and renewed strength to face whatever is before you. When you look at the political division, the vitriol, or the things that, that will often divide our own closest relationships, to know that one day when Christ returns in his reign, we will have complete unity with the family of God, submitted to him, paying allegiance to him, loving one another, laying down our lives for the good of the other. What does it look like for us to bring those images, knowing that that is, is, is the reality that awaits us, to bring that to bear in the moment? Right after you just had that fight with your husband or wife, uh, right, right after that friendship disintegrated, uh, right after that particular loss that you had. In the midst of your grief, in the midst of the disorientation to say, let me call to mind, let me see again, let me hold that in front of me. Not, not, not a minimizing of the pain, but to pull that in full view, but then to compare the beauty of what Christ's kingdom is. The fact that he will bring about reconciliation in our relationships. That there will only be tenderness with one another, kind eyes, a receptivity, a love, the fact that where our bodies are deteriorating, where cancer is the recent diagnosis, to know that one day we will have the redemption of our bodies. We were plagued by doubt, confusion, maybe, maybe the, the faith of your childhood. Said, I'm not even sure what I believe anymore, I'm trying to ask new questions and see things in different ways. I, I wish I had that kind of assurance as a, as a younger kid or earlier season of my life, and I don't, to know that one day when you see Jesus face to face, it will wash away every ounce of doubt, every ounce of confusion, and to know him as you are fully known, to experience the life that he has for you. When you just walk through the exhaustion of everyday life, of parenting, of friendship, of work, of just the expectations of, of, of doing life in a modern society, to know that one day in the kingdom of Jesus, when he returns, 
that we will have energy without end, that we will have beautiful work to do in front of us that's full of life and vigor, what he's designed us for. When you ache for the presence of a loved one that's been stolen away, to know that one day you will dance in the presence of God with the entire family of God. This is what we're made for. This is what he has promised. This is what he calls us to live in light of. And can we be those kind of people? Can we be a hopeful people that, that, that doesn't minimize the suffering, that doesn't kind of pull back, which is so often what we can experience in, in, in kind of well-meaning circles of like, well, you know, God, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And I, I like that. We'll say that. We'll say that at our home. But, but it can lack the ability to embrace the suffering. Can we be the kind of people who embrace the reality of the suffering and say, and there is a hope that far outweighs what I'm experiencing right now? That is the eternal reality. That, that is the Jesus who is returning. He will come. He will come again. He will make all things new. There is a new creation that I anticipate. So with Paul in verse 18, to consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For as Jesus comes, there the fullness of our adoption, the fullness of the fact that we are children of God will be revealed. When Jesus comes to have the complete redemption, not just of our souls, but also of our bodies, the entire integrated life that we're designed for with God will come into fruition. That when Jesus returns, we will experience the glory that is shared with him because of what he has done and what he has given to us. And so when we consider that, when we compare the sufferings of this present time and the future glory, we can begin to have hope. It begins to stir that hope in us. Not ignoring the pain, but so expanding our vision, our view of what will be one day. I love this poem by uh, Henry Francis Lye. I'm actually going to read it a couple times, second time a little bit more slowly, and then, then we'll enter into to just time of, of being still before the Lord. Now, I mentioned on the front end, it, it can be really easy, especially this season, um, to have so much noise, to just kind of be flooded with the things we're supposed to be doing and presents we're buying and what parties are we going to and how do you calendar everything? And then it's like, oh wait, I'm, I'm designed to be formed by God during this season. And so I want, I want us to, to slow down a little bit and take time in silence uh, to do really what Paul says here, to consider, to hold out in front of us. Yes, the suffering. What are the areas of suffering that I'm experiencing right now? What do I experience on behalf of other people? What do I see? What, what am I burdened with right now? And then to say, oh, but I want to consider this weight of glory. The fact that Jesus is coming again, and there's a new creation coming. And that far outweighs what I experience right now. So let's read this poem. My rest is in heaven. My rest is not here. Then why should I murmur when trials are near? Be hushed, my dark spirit, the worst that can come, but shortens thy journey and hastens thee home. It is not for me to be seeking my bliss and building my hopes in a region like this. I look for a city which hands have not, have not piled. I pant for a country by sin not defiled. Let doubt then and danger my progress oppose. They only make heaven more sweet at the close. Come joy or come sorrow, whate'er may befall, an hour with my God will make up for it all. I'm going to read it again. And then we'll, we'll move into a time of just stillness and silence before the Lord.
but, but allow, allow the Spirit, just invite him in to, to kind of move through the recesses of your soul, of your heart. Like, what are the things that are burdening you right now? What are the things that, that are hard to pay attention to? But you know, like, this is broken. This is not the way, it's subject to futility. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And then hold out who Jesus is in the midst of that. My rest is in heaven. My rest is not here. Then why should I murmur when trials are near? Be hushed, my dark spirit, the worst that can come, but shortens thy journey and hastens thee home. It is not for me to be seeking my bliss and building my hopes in a region like this. I look for a city which hands have not piled. I pant for a country by sin undefiled. Let doubt then and danger my progress oppose. They only make heaven more sweet at the close. Come joy or come sorrow, whate'er may befall. An hour with my God will make up for it all. So Spirit, please come, search us, know us, reveal to us, shine a light on the, the broken dark places. And may we give us, give us the ability to see Jesus, in ways we haven't before, to know, Jesus, that you coming again, the creation that you're bringing about, the healing, the restoration, the redemption, all of that, that is our future, and it is forever. May we see you. May we see what you are up to. May we experience your voice and your presence even now. Father, we sang earlier you feel the world is broken, to which we all replied, we do. We feel the brokenness, we see the brokenness, we feel the effects of it. Give us the, give us the ability to be honest about that. It, and sometimes it, it feels like the, the light's not gonna break through the darkness. Will you give us the ability to see to see that, that light has come in the midst of the darkness. And wo oh, what a great light it is. And that you've given us the light of your presence even now. And what a great light it is. And that one day, the light of the world will come back. And there will be no corner of the universe that the darkness can hide. And you will shore up all the heartache. You will heal all of the broken places. You will restore all that's been torn down. Oh, give us a confidence. Give us an assurance that this is not, this is not just some sort of wishful thinking, but this is the God who's revealed himself, the Jesus who has come and is coming again. Spirit, give us this hope. May we consider the sufferings of this present world and up against those sufferings, consider who you are, what you've promised to do, and what life with you will be. And may that compel us. May that motivate us. I know I can't conjure up that faith on my own. I need you. I need you. We need you. We cry out. We cry out. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. In a world that is full of brokenness, come. Come and make things new. Make things new in our hearts. Make things new in our relationships. Make things new everywhere we turn. We long for you. We know that you are good. Give us this hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.